It's a great joy for me to be here this morning. Uh, Ilse and I came to Bloomington 25 years ago, 21 years ago, excuse me. Um, we were just about to have our first baby. Uh, we came from Germany, so we didn't know anybody here. One of the first things we did in town was uh, join the Bloomington Symphony Orchestra. Um, if you don't know it, I play the mother of all instruments. And during the rehearsal break, John Canfield walked up to me and he said, you're coming to our church on Sunday morning, aren't you? And if you, if you know John, you know that you just can't refuse. <laughs> now, we were not believing Christians at that time, um, but we were happy to go. And then just a few days later, we had our first child unexpectedly. We thought we still had seven weeks. Well, Carolyn decided she really wanted to get out. And so there we were with a little child and um, in a city we didn't know and a country we didn't know anything about. And then people from uh, Grace Covenant Church knocked at our doors and said, well, take it easy. We'll help you. We'll go and buy food for you and you just take it easy. And, and it became our family. And it has a lot to do with the text and the message uh, I'm going to talk about this morning, um, because it was just a little act of charity that invited us into that church, and that church became the place where we came to the Lord. Now, Tim wants me to tell one other story, which is about half a year later, somebody at Grace Covenant asked me, could you please clean the toilets. Okay? I'm a professor at IU. Could you please clean the toilets? And I want you to know that that, is, that was one of the greatest wisdoms I've ever met in my life. Because here were these people at Grace Covenant thinking, how can we involve these guys who are good for nothing? They don't speak our language. They don't know our, our culture. They don't know anything, but they can clean the toilets. And then when they've done that, we can say thank you. And then they'll feel more at home. And I think it's, it's just a great way to involve newcomers in the church, to give them little tasks, even menial tasks. You know, I'm still a professor. And today I'm, t I'm standing here and, and uh, talking about the word of the Lord, and I'm very thankful for all the way that he has gone with me over the years. Now, I want to return to Matthew chapter 25 this morning. Uh, Tim talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Matthew 25 and verses uh, 31 through the end of the chapter we have a habit in our churches that we stand up when we read the word of the Lord. So if you don't mind, please stand. This is Jesus talking. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. 
And he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and, and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us this morning. And we ask you that you give us tender hearts and open ears, that we hear well what you want to tell us this morning. Amen. You may be seated. The New Testament tells us that Jesus came to this world and he lived on this world with the purpose of dying for sinners, people who were lost like you and me were. And this text tells us that when Jesus will come again, he will also come for a purpose, but the purpose will be very different. When Jesus will come again, he will not come as a savior, he will come as a judge. And he will judge all nations, meaning everybody who is alive and everybody who ever was alive. And the text wants to tell us, Jesus wants to tell us this morning, to be very careful to distinguish between two different ages and two different things, salvation and judgment. Salvation is, the time for salvation is now. We can now meet Jesus Christ as our Savior and be saved from sin. But when he comes back for judgment then the time for salvation is over. 
then everybody will be judged according to his deeds. And so we want to be very careful to understand that Jesus is saying with a certain urgency here, now is the time for salvation. Now you can accept me as your Savior. Then it will be too late. The second message of this text is, when Jesus will come back as our judge, he will decide, were you and were I, will spend eternity. And Jesus says, there are only two possibilities, exactly two possibilities. There's heaven, there's hell. There's the kingdom of the Father, there's hell. There's eternal life or there's eternal death. There are only two possibilities. And the Bible gives us pretty good descriptions of what that means. Good descriptions of both places. Eternal life in the kingdom of our Lord we find in Revelations, in Isaiah, in the Gospels, glimpses of what that place will be like, what life in that place will be like. And so it says there will be eternal joy, the joy of people who finally meet the goal and the sense of their lives when they come into the presence of their Lord. This will be a place with no sorrow, no pain, for God will wipe away all tears. There will be no worrying about grades, no worrying about tomorrow, no poverty, Death will be no more. There will only be vibrant life. And there will be life of a creation which will be as good again as it was at the moment of creation. And I take that literally. I want to be there and play football with Bob. Because Bob's going to have a body which will be perfect. Just Perfect. And when he doesn't play football with me, I know he's going to sing opera. It will not be a, commun- a community of ghosts, no shining ones. It will be a community of real people with real bodies and people who will recognize each other. Luke and I can have breakfast because we recognize each other. I can be with my wife. I can be with my friends. I look forward to that. And the greatest joy will be that we will be in the presence of the Lord. Jesus will be near us and he will share meal with us. Can you imagine having dinner with the Lord? It will just be overwhelming joy. A life in which everything is good. Isn't that where we want to be? That's where everybody wants to be. And then there is the other place, hell, the outer darkness, the place where there's crying and gnashing of teeth, a place of pain and desperation because there's no no escape from it. Remember the story Jesus tells about the the rich man who knew, who knew no charity, no love in his life, and he finally ends up in hell and he sees the beggar Lazarus over in paradise and he begs father Abraham send Lazarus at least for a little bit to relieve my pains and Abraham says sorry even if I wanted to there's this big gulf between us 
And nobody can come to you or come to us. Jesus speaks of hell as a fiery furnace. I went up to Gary a few years ago with a group from IU to visit U.S. Steel. I don't know if anybody has ever been in a, in a steel mill. That's a pretty amazing thing. They have these big furnaces where they cook steel, where they literally cook steel. And so when you go there, you get a protective suit and a face shield, and then they let you go a little bit closer to the furnace. And if you don't have the face shield, the heat is so intense that your eyes will burn up. That's the heat that Jesus talks of in hell. And man will not burn up in hell. He's just going to be in that heat and suffer from the heat. The Bible calls hell Gehenna. Gehenna, which is the name of the dump site of Jerusalem. So hell is the place where all waste of human existence is dumped. Where all the waste of human existence rots and stinks and burns. A place where nothing beautiful exists, a place of utter destruction and desperation, a place of darkness, as in the hour when Jesus died on the cross, complete darkness. And remember, light is the first creation of God. I always think of light as God's greeting to the world. Let there be light. And if you've ever been in a hospital in pain during the night, you're longing for light because the darkness makes the pain even more unbearable. In hell, there's no light, no greeting from God. And the worst will be the complete and total separation from God, the source of all light. Remember when Jesus was on the cross bearing our sins, at that moment, God turned away from him and left him alone. That loneliness was so painful for Christ that he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the pain was so great that Christ died from it. That will be the pain in hell. Hell is a place to be avoided at all costs. And the question is, do we really take hell seriously today? How many jokes do you know? Jokes that tell us, it won't be so bad. It's only for the Catholics. Jesus says it's a terrible place. There's a lot of theology today that teaches, well, those who do not enter the kingdom of God, they'll just disappear. They will be annihilated. The Bible does not support such a view. The Bible says those who do not go into the kingdom of the Lord, they go to hell. Modern man likes to say, I don't want to be bothered by a God who lets people go in hell. Yeah, that's like standing in front of a hurricane and saying, Ike, I don't want to be bothered by you. You think that helps? The storm rages anyway. There is hell whether we like it or not. And, and I must admit, as Christians, even we don't like to talk about hell, right? We like to talk about heaven. And that's crazy enough in our society, but to talk about hell? 
Hell isn't fair. But the truth is we don't get the gospel at a discount. You know what? There is no heaven without hell. It's so simple. Jesus says, those who do not believe in me go to hell. And we can make a decision. We either believe him and then we believe that there's hell. Or we don't believe him. So simple. Heaven and hell go together. So Jesus tells us here in in no uncertain words, there are exactly two places where we can spend eternity. His kingdom or hell, life in community with God, or total separation from God. And he will decide who goes where. So let's take him serious in what he says. You and I will end up either in that place or in that place. And how can we be indifferent about it? How can we be indifferent about the thought that my parents or your brother or your friend will end up in hell? Why are we so silent about that? The judgment scene that Jesus described shows us how the judge will separate all men into sheep, which will enter the kingdom of God, and goats, which will enter into eternal punishment. And the sheep and the goats that Jesus has in mind are Middle Eastern sheep and goats. We think of sheep as nice, big, white animals, right? Easy to tell apart from a goat. Well, in the Middle East, they have different kind of sheep. The sheep are small, brownish, speckled, and they look just like goats because the goats look just like the sheep. It's interesting, the Hebrew language only has one word for both. They're just little animal. Even the language can't decide whether one is a sheep and one is a goat. And so what Jesus is saying in the hour of judgment, the judge looks very, very closely, as closely as it takes to tell a sheep and a goat apart. And he looks very, very closely at what every single one of us has done. And that's the third message of this text. In the hour of judgment, the only thing that's going to count is what you have done. Doesn't matter what you thought. Doesn't matter what you intended. What matters is what you did and what you did not do. In our justice system, I'd say, fortunately, you knock down somebody in the street, they take you to court, and then they spend hours and hours finding out what was your motivation. What did you intend when you knocked down this guy? Did you want to kill him? Did you want to take his money? Or was it just um, because you didn't pay attention? And that's going to decide where you end up in the in the court's judgment. In the last judgment, all this doesn't count. Motivation plays no role. The only thing that matters is what you did. Jesus will judge you and me by our works, the ones that we did and the ones that we didn't do. Now let me read again three verses here. Then the king will say to those on the right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. 
I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So what is the mark of the sheep? What is the mark of the lives of the sheep? The answer is charity. Practical love. The Greek word for love in the, in the New Testament is agape. And I love the Greeks, you know, the ancient Greeks, because they were extremely precise with language. They were obsessed with precision. And so where we say love, they had seven different words. Okay? So for us, love can be a warm feeling in my heart. Well, that would have been one Greek word. Love could be belonging together as, a, as family members. That would be another Greek word. Love can be feeling of friendship. That would be a third Greek word. Love can be loyalty to your nation. That's another Greek word. Love can be the intense fiery attraction between man and woman. That's yet another Greek word. And love can be practical concern for the welfare of other people. And that's agape. Only that is agape. And it's almost always the word that the New Testament uses when we read the word love. So agape means doing something. Agape means love in action for the interest and the welfare of other people. Now, you can go a little bit further back. The Greek Old Testament takes the Hebrew word chesed and translates it as agape. So what is chesed? Well, it's the practical grace of God. It's God's loving kindness which he shows to all people, in particular to the people of Israel. So the Old Testament tells us God intervenes for people in need, for people in distress, out of loving kindness. God helps the poor and the afflicted out of loving kindness. God even gives rain and sunshine to his enemies out of loving kindness. Agape, loving kindness, practical love is one of the greatest marks of our God. And the sheep, the sheep were carrying that mark. Their practical love was their mark because it was the mark of their God and their Savior. They reflect the being of Christ and of the Lord. So agape charity is the mark of the people who go into the kingdom of God. And the important sentence here is, what you have done to the least of my brothers, that you have done to me. So every act of charity, Christ says, every act of charity to a brother and sister of Christ is an act of charity to Christ himself. So Jesus says two things. First of all, the charity to the brothers and sisters of Christ, that is, the charity to their own brothers and sisters in the church of Christ, is what marks the lives of the sheep. Now, Jesus says in Matthew 12, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister. What is the will of the Father? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's exactly what the sheep had done. 
And that's why the sheep were brothers and sisters of Christ. Second, Jesus says the mark of the sheep is not a special love for those with the best positions in the church. Sorry, Steve. It's not the love for the pastor. You should love these guys. I do. I love Tim. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. It's not a special love for the pastors and the elders and the clerks and the band and whoever. It's also not a special love for those with the best reputation in town or those with the best jobs or those with the nicest homes. It's a special love for the least of the brothers and sisters. Literally, those which are regarded as of no importance. The valueless people. And my question to you this morning is, who in your mind are the valueless people in this church? And now you think, no, 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 no. That doesn't apply to me. There's nobody lowly in this church in my eyes. We're all great people. But don't fool yourself. Proceed by elimination. Okay? Think of all the valuable people in this church. Cross them out. Then let's see who's left over. And what Christ says is the way how you deal with those persons, that's how you deal with me. Every act of charity you're showing to those persons is an act of charity to me. Every act you're not showing to those persons is a sign of your lack of love to me. So this is a serious question. Who in your eyes are the least in this church? The mark of the sheep is charity directed at the small and the weak. Those who can't give anything back. Maybe a thankful look. Maybe not even that. And this charity had become so natural to them that they even didn't realize it. They said, Lord, when did we see you hungry? And that shows it just came very natural to them. Very natural, practical love. And that is a sure sign of meekness and purity of hearts when you do something good and you don't even realize it. Calvin says charity of that kind is the fruit of repentance. And I think that's exactly true. Because what Calvin says is only a person who knows how wretched he is in the eyes of his Creator and who knows that his Creator loves him anyway and has given his own son for his salvation. Only a person like that can really look at valueless people and say, I want to do something for you, not for those of importance. Jesus says to them, what you have done to the least of my brothers, you have done to me. And there's an enormous dynamics in what Jesus is saying here. Okay? Remember, Jesus says, Jesus was asked, what are the greatest commandments? And he says, 
the first great commandment. Love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your power. And the other, love your neighbor as yourself. And you know what happens here? What Jesus is saying is, in every act of charity to the lowest of my brothers, these two commandments become one. Because you're showing your love to a lowly person, that's showing your love to God. The two commandments coalesce. They become one. People whose lives are marked by such love receive the sentence, come, inherit the kingdom. But then on the other side of the judge, there are those whose lives were not marked by such love, not marked by charity, and they have plenty of opportunities. Jesus makes that very clear when they ask him, so when did we see you hungry, Lord? And Jesus says, well, every time you didn't feed those valueless people, you didn't feed me. You have plenty of opportunity. They were regarding themselves as too honorable, too important to deal with people of lower status. If they ever did anything nice, they probably did it to the elders or the pastor to get that important look. Okay? And what you see here is, again, the two commandments flow together. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord with all your heart and all your might. The two commandments become one. But this time in a negative sense. You haven't loved your lowly neighbor. You haven't loved God. And therefore you go to hell. And believe me, I find that shocking. Because what Christ is telling us is, Every act of charity we did not do is a capital crime in his judgment court. There are a lot of crimes I have committed. So what is the charity that Jesus speaks of? If you look carefully at the text, you will find some hints. The sheep have seen the hungry and have given them to eat. But the Greek word that you find here has the sense of gluttony. They didn't just give them a few breadcrumbs. They gave them plentiful to eat. They made a big festive meal for these poor people so they, they could really eat as much as they wanted and be filled. They saw the thirsty and gave them to drink and in the hot climate of Israel, of course, thirst is the biggest feeling of deprivation. People died of thirst more than they died of hunger. And the sheep gave these people something to refresh themselves, to quench their thirst. So charity means having an eye for people in poverty and need. Or having an eye for the poverty and need of people. I have talked to people who went to India and they came back and said, it is so beautiful. It's so lovely. You go to these villages and it looks like centuries ago. It's so lovely. And others go there and they say, you can't believe the poverty in those villages. You see the difference? We need to have open eyes for the poverty and the needs of the people around us. And then charity means doing something to relieve that poverty. Charity means giving freely to the needy. 
The sheep have seen people naked. Now in the days of Jesus, nakedness was the sign of greatest poverty and misery. A sign of complete inability to take care of oneself. Deuteronomy 5 commits a person so poor that he goes about naked to the special care of the people around him. And that's exactly what the sheep did. They clothed the naked people. And remember, to clothe naked people who were greatly ashamed. That's the first act of charity the Lord did after Adam and Eve fell. They were greatly ashamed and God clothed them. The sheep have met strangers and invited them into their homes. Now again, in the days of Jesus, going on a journey was a dangerous enterprise. You could fall into the hands of robbers, murderers taking your life with your money. You could also fall into a band of Roman soldiers that used to play violent games with simple people. You could find an inn, but mind you, that would not have been Hilton Hotels. Okay? Inns were dangerous people, the places, because there were bad people all over. People that would beat you up, rob you, mug you. Being a stranger meant being without the protection of a home and a family, exposed to the dangers of a life with no Bloomington Police Department. Okay? A dangerous situation to be in. And so hospitality, we find this again and again in the letters of Paul. Hospitality was a treasure in those days. Very, very important. But then you open your house to a stranger? Are you crazy? That guy might be a thief himself. You're opening your door and he walks in and who knows what he takes? Because you don't know it. So, the sheep took strangers into their homes, but they exposed themselves to a lot of risk in doing that. The sheep had taken time to visit the sick, and again, they did not go to Bloomington Hospital. In the days of Jesus, being seriously ill often meant poverty, because a person could not attend to his field or his animals. Sick people didn't have proper care from medical doctors like Adam. They were lying in filthy beds. Their wounds were covered with pus and they were smelly. Many illnesses were contagious and the people had to walk in the streets and say, Stay away from me! Stay away from me! I'm ill! And then there were lots of people who thought, If somebody is seriously ill, that's a sign of sin. A sign that he's condemned by God. That might be his own sin or his family's sin, but you know what? That person is a sinner. We better stay away from him. I don't want to go into the house of a sinner. And so being seriously ill on top of everything else meant being alone in society. And the sheep had gone visiting such people risking their good reputation. You've been in the house of a sinner, but also risking their own good health. They had gone to visit prisoners in jail. Now, Jewish law doesn't know jail at all, but the Romans had prisons. And so the first point to observe here is if a person went to 
to visit a prisoner in jail, he put himself at the mercy of a brute, cruel Roman officer who might just have said, ah, you're here in jail, stay here. We need you here. We need your labor. Okay? Prisons were built underground. The prisoners were capital offenders, people who couldn't pay back their debts, people who revolted against public order. There's a description by a first century historian that, said, that describes a prison as, with so many shut up in such close quarters, the poor wretches were reduced to the appearances of brutes. And since their food and everything else pertaining to their needs was so foully commingled, a stench so terrible assailed anyone who drew near that it could scarcely be endured. This is not visiting Monroe County Jail. People died from mistreatment in jails. Many people committed suicide in order to shorten their time in jail. And so guess what? A visitor exposed himself to a lot of danger going into a jail. He could have been beaten by the inmates. And yet the sheep had gone to visit prisoners and bring them signs of hopes and greetings from their loved ones. And all these are the acts of charity that mark the lives of the sheep. And the question is, what does all this mean to our lives today in Bloomington, Indiana. Now, you could say hunger and thirst are not a problem in this community. It doesn't get as hot as it does in Israel. And naked people, the welfare department takes care of them. Sick people, they go to a nice hospital. That's what, why we pay taxes. And so, in the end, you say, well, we, we don't have all these problems. But you know what? That's true. But hunger and thirst and sickness and being a prisoner can be physical, but it can also be very spiritual. Hunger and thirst for love. Hunger and thirst for being accepted by others. People can be complete strangers in their own homes because nobody talks to them. Because they're old and they don't understand the world anymore. And they have no families to help them. Or because they have mental problems. People can be in the prison of bad relationships. And drug addictions. And those are real problems in this city. So if you look for the prisoners. And the sick. And the hungry. And the thirsty. And the naked. They're all here, and the question is, what do you do about them? Do you feed people who are hungry for love? Do you invite that weird kid in your dorm that nobody wants to talk to, to your room, although everybody else is laughing at you? Where are the homeless people of Monroe County? In the Church of the Good Shepherd. I take that question very seriously. I know that every, I don't know how many Sundays, but I know that regularly here you feed the college kids a Sunday dinner. And that's a wonderful thing to do. But aren't there people more lowly than college kids in Bloomington, Indiana? And where are they? On Kirkwood Square? Get these people here. Feed them. 
That's what Jesus is talking about. Most people today connect the word charity with the act of writing a check for an organization that does something nice for other people. And that is not the charity Jesus speaks of. I found this ad on the internet. One such Christian charity organization is Compassion International, which connects children in need with compassionate people who unselfishly choose to give just a little bit of what they earn each month to make a difference. Just a little bit. That's not what Jesus is talking about. The charity Jesus talks of is giving freely, not just a little bit. And if you don't feel it in your purse, if you don't see it on your plate, that's not charity. Our church in Bonn for years packed shoe boxes right before Christmas to send them off to Samaritan's Purse. And I'm sure churches do that in Bloomington. They do it all over Europe. And you wouldn't believe what goes into these boxes. You know, the little teddy bear that my baby chewed on for two years, I'll pack it and send it off to Africa to make a small black child happy. And then these boxes are piled up in stacks in the church building and they're hauled away to Africa and the happy people of Bonn smile nicely at each other and they say, we have done something good. Aren't we generous people? And you know what? That's not the charity Jesus speaks of. It's a consumption good. It's something that Nice people in Bonn use to advance the good feelings about themselves. That's what it is in all honesty. The charity Jesus speaks of makes us get involved with the poor people. Jesus speaks of going down in the dungeon where the prisoners sit. Getting personally involved with the sick and the stranger. And personal involvement means going to dirty places, dealing with stinky people, getting dirty yourself. And I tell you, I'm very glad about two things. One is the church in Bonn has now started a project working with prostitutes that are in the streets of Bonn. And Samaritan Purse has recognized the problem, and they now start doing other things with the money they, they receive. But, um, but the question is, is it really love when we send some halfly chewed up teddy bear to Africa. No, it isn't. And here's the great problem with charity. Charity can become an idol. About 150 years ago, the large churches in Europe, the Lutheran churches and the Catholic church, discovered charity. This is an interesting period of time because this is the time when the churches in Europe became Completely spiritually empty. And that's when they discovered charity and started all sorts of charitable organizations, schools, hospitals, soup kitchens, and so on. And they took more money from their members and they took money from the government to do lots and lots of good things. But they were spiritually empty. They did all this to make themselves feel better. Not out of love. For Christ. They love to fight against poverty, not for an individual 
poor man. And that's the difference. Working through an organization does not mean personal involvement. Charity can become an idol. And it will if it's all organized. We don't get personally involved. So if you don't get dirty, it's not charity. Writing a check is a safe thing to do. But again, it's not the charity Jesus talks of. Jesus talks of taking a lot of risk. Go to that filthy, sick person and expose yourself to all the germs and whatever. Go into a prison to visit somebody even though you might be beaten up. Put yourself on the line. That's the charity Jesus talks about. If you don't risk anything, it's probably not charity. And then we can cast the net a little bit wider and look at the Old Testament law and see that it really has two guidelines for how we practice charity to poor people. One is share your bread with the hungry. Give freely. When somebody is in immediate need, give freely to relieve that need. But then there's another rule which says lend freely to the poor. Now, that's a very different concept. When you share your bread, you don't expect anything back. When you lend, you expect something to come back, right? You expect some fruit. Now, somebody at the time could be poor because he had a bad harvest or he lost his cattle or he was ill for some time. And the sense of lending here is give him some grain so that he can sow his field and reap a harvest next year and then have his own livelihood back. Or give him some of your sheep so that he can raise a flock and the flock grows and then he has a livelihood back. Okay? So the idea is be charitable in the sense that you're helping somebody to get on his feet and have his own livelihood. Why? Because the Bible ties up very closely the work of your hands and the dignity of a person. The Bible does not want, God does not want to see people in poverty forever. And he wants us to go and help people to stand on their own feet. That's a very different concept from sharing your bread with poor people. It means don't be satisfied with giving things away. Make investments. Invest in the welfare of other people. Now, what could that mean? It could mean work with poor kids to get them through high school. Take in a kid and give him education that he wouldn't have had otherwise and help him to get, get a life. And it could mean go and work with the junkies on Kirkwood Square to get them back on track. Lending means treating a needy person with trust rather than let him feel his dependence. And that's an investment. And every investment in this world, I tell you as an economist, every investment is risky. There's no guarantee that the person will get back on track. There's no guarantee that the harvest will come out nicely. There's no guarantee that the junkie will turn into a nice banker. But God calls us to make those investments anyway, even though everything we invest may be gone. But then the point is, if you don't risk anything, it's not charity. 
So who do we owe charity in our community? Jesus says, the least of my brothers. Okay, that's easy. We could look around and say, okay, that's our church. We're just charitable to the least person in our church. Done. That's not what Jesus means. Because we don't know who is his least brother in our neighborhood. Let me tell you this. Every once in a while, I'm invited to preach in a church in Leverkusen. You've heard about Bayer Leverkusen, right? The big chemical company. And and the first time I went there, I walked in. I was uh, told where I had to sit. And next to me is a person. And I look at this person and I thought, I can't believe this. What is this person doing here? Now, if you have ever seen people who spent 20 years in the streets as homeless people, you know what's in their face, right? Everything they've been through, you can read out of their face. And that's this guy sitting next to me, and I thought, what is he doing here? He's not going to follow my sermon, is he? So after the service, I went to one of the elders, and I said, I can't believe what kind of people you have here. And the elder said, yeah, we can't believe it either. Twenty years ago, we started a soup kitchen for all the homeless people in Leverkusen. And they actually do it with a couple of other churches. But every Sunday at lunchtime, all the homeless people, the druggies, everybody comes to that church to get a meal. And you know what? Some of them have become believers. We don't know who is the lowliest brother of Christ in Bloomington unless we invite people and tell them, look, here is where your home could be. Here is where you can meet Christ. That's charity. So on the day of judgment, Jesus will judge all men by their works of charity. And only those who can show such works will make it into the kingdom of God for eternal life, Jesus tells us very clearly, you are judged by works. And does that mean we can earn eternal life by good behavior? Well, you know, Tim wouldn't let me speak here. If I even had the faintest suspicion that that were true. Right? We're not compelled to believe in a false gospel of legalism and piousness by this text. Because the text tells us very clearly the difference between the sheep and the goats is somewhere else. Jesus says, come you blessed. And the Greek, remember the Greeks are so precise. The Greek says that blessing is somewhere in the past. And the kingdom they now receive is the fruit of that blessing. It's not like they're blessed in the moment of the judgment. They were blessed before when God elected them as their people. So it's all God's grace in the end that they, that they inherit the kingdom. We're judged by works but saved by grace. God gave us faith. And charity is the sign of faith. That's what Jesus wants to say here. Charity is the visible sign of faith. James writes, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. 
And the point is that acts of charity for people in need are the litmus test of whether or not your faith is alive. You have works of charity, your faith is alive. You have no works of charity, your faith is just warm talking about sweet Jesus. That's the message here. Okay? We don't earn heaven by acts of charity. Acts of charity are a sign that we're on the way to heaven because by God's grace we were elected into his sheep. Jesus says, By this all men shall know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Well, how shall men recognize this unless the love is active and expresses itself in visible acts of charity? Paul says in Ephesians, We're created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. So think of this. That terrible person that you think you can't work with, God puts him right in your face with a purpose that you show his love for that person and that you experience and show that your faith is alive. So what does the judgment day Jesus speaks of means for our lives today. I want to say three things. First, the time before the judgment is the time of salvation. And the fact that there will be a judgment day tells us it is time now to give your life to Christ if you haven't done it already. There is an urgency here. Accept the grace of God while it is still time. Second, How do you think Jesus says, come you blessed, inherit the kingdom? Come you blessed, inherit the kingdom? Or did he say, come you blessed, I'm so happy to see you, inherit the kingdom? I'm sure he he will be so glad to see all his sheep. He'll be happy. You're there. I'm so glad to see you. I saw every act of charity you did. I'm so happy you're here. Can you imagine on that day that Christ, who gave his life for you, will smile at you and say, So good to see you. Come in. Let's have a meal together. There's great joy in in these words. And it shows that we're making Christ happy when we do acts of charity. He is pleased when you get dirty. He is pleased when you put yourself on the line for someone else. John 14, Jesus says, If anyone, I have to find this, If anyone loves me, he will do my commands, and the Father will love him, and we will make our home with him. So what does that say? It says, if we make charity a part of our lives, we will experience that Christ loves us, that God loves us. We will experience Christ's presence in our lives. We will experience that he's pleased with us and he lives with us. And that will give us courage to go on 
until the day of judgment comes. That will be the greatest reward that anybody can imagine. And three, knowing that Christ will return as the judge of this world incites us to take him seriously and to fulfill his command, love your neighbor as yourself. Because true charity is not cheap. It's risky business. It's dirty business. It often requires to swim against the stream to do something that in the eyes of other people is completely hopeless, crazy, stupid. Why don't you go with the majority? No. Charity often means doing the exact opposite of what everybody else does. It requires a decision to act against our own selfish nature. And if we do that, we need courage. We need courage. We need courage to do that. And the fact that Christ is coming back to judge this world. And he's coming back to say, I'm so glad to see you because you were my nice little sheep. That fact gives me a lot of courage. And I hope it gives you a lot of courage to do the things Jesus wants you to do. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For you know with certainty that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen.